It's time for a Big Blue Kickoff Live. Nobody can ever tell you that you couldn't do it because you're dead. On Giants.com. You know what I saw? New York Giant Prime. And the Giants mobile app. We'll punch you in the nose for 60 minutes with a relentless competitive attitude. Part of the Giants Podcast Network. Let's go out there like a bunch of crazy dogs. Have some fun. Welcome to Big Blue Kickoff Live on Giants.com and the Giants mobile app. John Schmelk, Lance Meadow with you. The phone number is 973-667-1960. Just keep in mind, folks, that the um, number is going to be busy for a while today. We have a couple great guests coming up. We have Audrey Snyder, covers Penn State for The Athletic, coming up. Then we have Sam Webb, publisher of the Michigan Insider for 24-7 Sports. He comes on at 1230. We'll try to squeeze in some calls in between those two guests, but there are a lot of prospects to cover, so just keep that in mind. Mr. Meadow, how are you? I'm doing very well. How about yourself? Doing great, and as a reminder, you can find all of our podcasts in the Giants Podcast Network presented by Investors Bank. All right, let's get to our first guest of the show. She is Audrey Snyder. She covers Penn State football for The Athletic. Audrey, you got John Schmelk and Lance Meadow here in the Northeast. How are you today? I'm doing great, guys. Another... uh rainy day in state college here we go and it is a rainy day up here in new jersey and new york city as well audrey so we are in the same boat though spring hopefully knock on wood is coming let's start with penn state here and traditionally penn state puts up some of the best pro day and workout numbers in the country it's just the way they roll so did anything really jump out before we hit the individual prospects surprise you from what you saw at penn state's pro day it might sound a little weird um, because, you know, you had Jason Owe running a 4.3640, Micah Parsons a 4.3940, um, but that didn't surprise me uh, because that's, I mean, behind the scenes, that's what these guys have been doing throughout their time here at Penn State. Um, the one guy who I did think helped himself a lot at Pro Day was defensive end Shaka Tony. Um, I mean, you look at, it's kind of unfair because of the guys who were competing with him that same day, but uh, Tony checked in at 6'2", 242 pounds, with a 39-inch vertical. Uh, so, you know, he's kind of one of those tweener guys, whether he's defensive end, linebacker. And I think kind of the interesting connection there for you all is he's been super close with Sean Spencer, right? Spencer was the guy who recruited him to Penn State. He's been there throughout the majority of his career. Uh, so that's obviously kind of a, an interesting connection there. But, yeah, I thought Tony really helped himself out. And whether or not, you know, he's a guy who can play in a 3-4 or 4-3, uh, that's going to be up to, to some team to figure out. Yeah, it's interesting you brought up Shaka Tony and mentioned Sean Spencer because I, I heard him yesterday or the other day speaking, and he called him his crazy uncle from back mm-hmm. during his uh, Penn State days. So that speaks volumes about their connection. In terms of Tony versus Jason Owe, who you just brought up, when you look at the production, Audrey, Tony outperformed him from a statistical standpoint. I don't really think there's much to debate there, though a lot of people would say Owe has more upside, hasn't been playing football as long as Tony. So in terms of the translation to the NFL level, who do you see thriving more? Who overall has the more upside in terms of what they could deliver on the next level? I think Owe has more upside just simply because it's still that raw, untapped potential that, you know, I mean, that's what college teams were salivating over, too. I mean, you get a guy that big running a four three six forty, and keep in mind, I mean, Owe didn't start playing football until like 10th or 11th grade. He thought he was going to be a basketball player at Blair Academy. Uh, so he's been late to the sport, and I think that's where, you know, there aren't guys built like him, you know. I think Shaka Tony, you can find a lot of guys with kind of similar attributes. Now, I will say Tony, and this is where these guys are kind of opposites, 
Tony's always been described as a student of the game, someone who loves the film, breaking it down, super, super knowledgeable, and I think he'll really, you know, impress teams when he gets on Zoom with them, where Owe, you know, while he's a quick learner and really bright guy, he's always been quick to point out, like, hey, I'm still new to this, you know, I'm still learning more and more about the position, so I think, you know, you look at Owe, you say, okay, why didn't he have a sack last year, but I'll kind of counter that by saying if you go back to that Indiana game week one, he generated a ton of pressure. I mean, it was pretty much insane to go back and look at and you just think, like, how did, how did he never get a sack despite all these crazy pressures? So it's it's really interesting because, you know, you look at O.A., he's one year as a full-time starter. Tony's got a bigger body of work, more productivity. Um, but, I, you know, it's all I think so many teams are going to fall in love with Jason O.A.'s measurable Although I think Shaka Tony might surprise some people at the next level as well. All right, OJ, you kind of asked the question rhetorically there, so I'm going to ask you just straight out. Why did, do you think, watching all these games, you watched far more, I watched about two or three games of Jason Owe, I watched all of his pressures on tape and all that stuff. I see how he gets there, and it's impressive. From what you saw watching, is there something you can put your finger on for why he couldn't turn all those physical skills, all those pressures into a sack. Is it just bad luck? Teams get rid of the ball quick? Is it maybe a lack of instincts? Is there anything you could put your finger on for why he couldn't create more production? I, I do think there's something to the teams getting the ball out quick. And, you know, you look at usually a lot of these guys had their stats in non-conference games. That wasn't, you know, wasn't the case this year with the Big Ten. So I do think, you know, he's jumping into it first time as a, as a full-time starter, kind of getting thrown in there. But I think your part about bad luck, as strange as it might sound, I think there's actually some truth to that. Because, I mean, again, like I keep going back to that Indiana game, and you just watch that and you say, like, how in the world can this guy not get a sack when you, you know, when you look at it? Um, some of the things that stood out to OA, and I know this is probably not, you know, what everybody wants to hear, but it was pretty crazy to watch at some points where, you know, he's running 20, 30 yards down the field to make a tackle. Um, and you're just you're watching, you know, this big, massive dude taken off with that speed and so I just think you know and Sean Spencer again worked a ton with Jason Oway and Sean used to always say that Jason was a mannequin that they thought they could mold and shape him you know into what they wanted him to be and so I just still think that there's a lot of work to be done there but but yeah as far as trying to identify some kind of flaw or something like that I think it's you know just teams getting the ball out quickly and then a guy still learning the position and trying to grow and develop into it on the fly a little bit. Audrey, when you're a pass rusher on the NFL level, a key component is also being able to stop the run. From what you've seen out of Jason Owe, considering, as we just talked about, sample size is not very big, where do you see him having the most area to grow? Is it in terms of helping to stop the run or finishing those plays that you just alluded to and getting the sacks? I think it's more so the finish. I mean, I think he's one of those guys you just kind of look at his get-off and the fact that he has that even that burst, I think that's, you know, you look at it and you say, all right, if this guy can ever finish this thing off, he has a chance to really be special. Um, I don't think his, his play against the run is a problem. Um, I just think that there's more upside when you look at him as a pass rusher and what he can potentially do. And, you know, it's also interesting because Penn State's defense struggled last year. And, you know, you look at this as a group that you say, okay, it should have had Micah Parsons and Jason Oway together, you know, for that really important uh, last year. But it just they weren't able to get these guys on the field together for that critical season. But, yeah, I think you just look at him um, as a pass rusher, and I think that's why, you know, with the testing numbers that Oway put up, I just 
I struggle to think that some that he's still going to be you know on the board in the second round. I just think some team's going to jump at this guy late in the first round because they're going to fall in love with the measurables. I just I, you know there's always trying to strike that balance between production and you know proven potential versus hey here's a guy who put up some really good testing numbers and I think Oway is just that classic example. Oh, Oja, you're right. I mean, you mentioned how they called him a mannequin. Some NFL coach is going to say, "You give me that athlete, I'm going to turn him into a double-digit sack guy." And it's just a matter of, and it's just a matter of when that coach's general manager is picking in the draft. It's going to happen. It's just a matter of when. Oh yeah, we see it every single year. No question. Let's go to Michael Parsons. He's a guy that obviously opted out this season. Uh, had a really productive year before that. You mentioned some of the the, the, uh, the numbers: a four three nine forty yard dash, a four four short shuttle, uh, weighted at two hundred forty six pounds. Should we just pencil him in as a NFL Mike middle linebacker that you're going to run your defense through, or do you think he fits better elsewhere? I think that the the interesting thing with Parsons is that they can move him around. I mean, I think his pass rush ability is like one of his best assets because. You have to keep in mind with him, this is a guy who, when he got to college, he hadn't played linebacker before. You know, he was a high school defensive end. He was a running back at one point, um, way, way back when he punted. So, I mean, this is a guy who just has tremendous athleticism and can do a lot of things. But I think it's going to be fun to see him kind of roaming around on the outside a little bit. Um, I mean, and the thing is, and Michael brought this up at his pro day, too, it's going to be about – how does he get back into football shape? Because the last game he played was in that Cotton Bowl at the tail end of 2019. So, I mean, that's a long layoff of just constant training. But, yeah, I mean, he's somebody who, you know, you build the defense around this guy. You find ways to feature him. And that's we saw it in that Cotton Bowl where it was, you know, that's the game that's going to make Micah Parsons a ton of money. Uh, but we just you never got to see that junior season because he opted out. And obviously it's, it's not going to hurt him one bit when you look at the draft stock. But, yeah, he's a guy that I think you kind of let him roam around out there, tap into his pass rush ability because he offers an awful lot. Well, he absolutely does, especially if you watch him on film, Audrey. But, you know, as somebody that watched him very closely – Whenever you have the type of player that you were just talking about that's so versatile, the argument is, well, any NFL team that selects him, you should at least have some grasp or some handle on how you want to utilize him as opposed to just throwing him into 50 million different situations. So from what you've seen, what do you think his strongest asset is? It's easy to say, hey, he can get after the quarterback. Is it his disruptive plays? Is it his vision in terms of being able to get to tackles in the open space? What is probably his strongest asset in your mind? It's the disruption, and I'll go back to that Cotton Bowl game again. I mean, he was a one-man wrecking crew in that game. I mean, it's kind of the the crazy stat with Parsons is that he never came down with an interception during his time at Penn State, and teammates loved to razz him about that because he was always around the ball and had his hands on it quite a few times. Uh, But, yeah, I mean, that Cotton Bowl game was his signature moment just because wherever he was, I mean, he was blowing up guys in the backfield, he was constantly harassing the quarterback. He got his hands on the football quite a bit. Um, and that's where I think, you know, it's going to come down to his scheme and how he fits in with the defense. Because you're absolutely right. I mean, so many times you see it, it's kind of like the shiny new object that's really exciting and teams get so over the moon about a guy. But then they move him around so often that you say, okay, like let him settle in and hone in on one thing. Um, and that's where Micah a team is going to have to make sure that he's kind of in check there too because he loves and wants to do everything. That was always the thing at Penn State where, I mean, he was a guy who was begging 
you know, last offseason, he wanted to return kicks. And, he, you know, he wanted to get some carries as a running back. And he just wanted to do all these, all these things. So, yeah, you definitely have to hone in on him. But he's a special athlete, and his ability to be disruptive was really, you know, remarkable. But, again, I think, and Penn State always, always said this, and I think there's a lot of truth in it, they just started to, like, scratch the surface with him just because that whole junior season was a lot. You mentioned this briefly in your previous answer, but in the modern NFL now, Audrey, to me, the most valuable linebackers are guys that you have to be able to trust in coverage, whether it's covering one of these ridiculous running backs out of the backfield on one of those option routes over the middle, one of those hour routes, or it's being able to to properly read throwing lanes in zone defense. So watching the tape, I have no doubt Michael Parsons can come downhill, get tackles for loss. He can run sideline to sideline. He can locate the ball, carry his physical. I though he can do all those things. I don't know how much I can trust him in coverage. You've seen him a lot more than I have. Tell me about Micah Parsons in coverage. Yeah, there's definitely some room for growth there, um, but I do think this is where you go back to the limited experience with the position. You, you know, you take a guy who's been a defensive end for most of his life, gets to college, and all of a sudden, you know, you're gonna, you're going to be a linebacker, you're sure. going to be an outside backer. Um, so I do think there's that. I mean, you look at the way the game is right now, and all these tight ends, right? And the athleticism there, and you know, you look at Kyle Pitts and the numbers he's putting up are going to be crazy, and they're already starting to trickle in today, and they look pretty ridiculous. Um, yeah, I mean, that's where you got to figure out what Micah can do. Um, but what we've seen over time with him, and this has kind of always been the motivating factor with him here, is when you tell him that he can't do something, that's when he becomes hell-bent on showing people that he can do it. So, I mean, I would doubt it. I mean, I go back to watching Micah as, you know, the five-star prospect uh, playing basketball, you know, in the Harrisburg Gymnasium, and he was really impressive there I go back to a recruiting camp at Penn State when he was a sophomore in high school and you know he just decided that he was going to line up at receiver that day and was torching kids you know it's just like that next level athleticism that for this guy's entire life he's been head and shoulders above everyone else so yeah I mean I wouldn't certainly I wouldn't say it's his best attribute right now but I definitely think he can get there in coverage for sure Audrey, I don't think there's any question about his talent, but as you well know, before teams are willing to select a player, they also look at the character and perhaps any off-the-field issues, and unfortunately Parsons' name has come up in a lawsuit, and there's been some allegations on that front. How concerning is that, and how much do you think that could potentially impact his draft stock? You know, I don't know, because I think it's really it's been an interesting case to kind of follow and try to figure it out. I mean, the thing with Micah, and I go back again to the recruitment, because it, it was just a crazy recruitment where he loved the attention, you know, he loved playing and toying with these fan bases, and it was just immaturity. I mean, but again, he was like 17, 18 years old. So you have that aspect of it, right? And then you also have what you alluded to as well, um, with the lawsuit regarding Isaiah Humphreys and, you know, potential hazing in the locker room. There's still a lot to me that has to play out with that in terms of, you know, we never, documents are sealed, you never find out so much information on these things. But, yeah, I mean, that's the the one concern. And Michael was asked about it at his pro day, and he said, you know, he's not the same guy that he was when he was 17, 18, 19 years old. Uh, So, you know, there's some truth to that, and he's matured in those kinds of things. But, yeah, we still, we don't know what happened or didn't happen with regards to that lawsuit. Um, so, yeah, that to me, you know, no doubt teams are going to dig into that. They're going to dig deep. Um, but from everything, from what we've heard, seen, witnessed at Penn State, you know, they raved about 
Parsons in the locker room and his leadership and teammates love them. And, and in Jason Oway, we're always pushing each other in workouts. So I think it's, you know, a lot of what we had heard from, from coaches here at Penn State over the years was that, you know, they thought that Micah was always kind of misrepresented, that he was a team first guy, but, you know, you just hear these things through recruitment. And obviously, you know, whatever did or didn't happen, again, we don't know um, with regards to the Isaiah Humphreys suit. But, yeah, to me, that's the, that's the biggest thing. I want to jump to the offensive side of the ball. We're joined by Audrey Snyder, covers Penn State football for The Athletic. We thank her for joining us. Pat Fryermuth, Audrey, I think is interesting. Does he profile as your traditional, you know, kind of two-way tight end? You can trust him to block. You can catch him, trust him to catch. He might not be, you know, the, the elite athlete that, that's going to win with, you know, four four nine speed down the seam, but you can trust him to do a little bit of everything? Absolutely, yeah. I think Pat's kind of the guy that – and the interesting thing with him, too, is he could have come out last year if he wanted to because he had reclassified in high school. So he decided to come back to Penn State for a junior season. And obviously, you know, Big Ten goes haywire and the season is what it is and he ends up getting hurt. Uh, but one of his big reasons for coming back was to improve his blocking. You know, he's a guy who prides himself now on kind of being that blue-collar, nitty-gritty, wants to, wants to do the dirty work type of guy. Um, but, you know, he's somebody who came in and made an impact from the minute he stepped on campus at Penn State. And the interesting thing now, he's still two to three weeks out from being, you know, fully recovered from that labrum injury that ended his season. So, I mean, we didn't see him do anything besides catch passes at Pro Day. So he said he might run a 40 in a few weeks um, just to kind of show teams what he can and can't do. But I do think at this point um, he's an intriguing guy just because he has the production to, you know, to back it and go behind it. Super mature guy. Um, so I do think there's there's a lot to like there, you know. But you're exactly right. He's not going to put up that crazy flashy forty um, like Pitts. But again, nobody else in this draft class is Kyle Pitts, and I think you kind of go from that top 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 tier to the next tier. Um, and that's where Pat kind of certainly slots in, you know, among the top guys in that next wave. Audrey, no one else on this planet is like Kyle Pitts. I just wanted to correct you there, but that's okay. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you're not going to be able to find two of those. No, for sure. you are not. Nah, he's uh, absolutely in a league of his own. But to your point, 16 career touchdowns for Pat is a notable number because that's, I believe, the tight end record all time at Penn State. How much was that red zone targets versus perhaps them trying to get him out and open in some more bigger explosive plays? You know, they did a good job with him because it was a little bit of both. And his tight ends coach um, is now in Jacksonville, so that's also maybe a wrinkle to watch there. Mm. Who knows what Urban Meyer wants to do? Uh, but Tyler Bowen did join the Jacksonville staff, you know, this winter. But, yeah, I mean, it was early on, you know, in Pat's career, it was definitely a red zone guy who was a red zone target. But, I mean, we would see it last year. And, again, the Penn State offense last year was a wreck. So it's, it's difficult at points to judge off of that. But there were still explosive plays that he made out of that offense despite, you know, the offense pretty much being in shambles for most of the season. So, yeah, I mean, he can be that big play threat, but again, you know, he's not going to have the speed that wows people, but he can do a lot of things really well, which I think, you know, is kind of difficult to find. I mean, I know for, for Penn State, everybody always thinks back to Mike Isicki, and with Mike, it was, hey, here's a really, really good athlete who's learning the position, but the blocking wasn't there. Um, where Pat's able to come in, get the tight end record, and block a heck of a lot better. So, you know, that's a comparison because you look at what Kaziki's been able to do in Miami, 
Um, and certainly, you know, it's panned out for him. So I think Pat's just a more complete tight end than Mike was at this point in his career. Audrey, can you give me a thumbnail on the three draft-eligible offensive linemen? You have Will Fry, Steven Gonzalez, and Michael, is it Minette or Minet? Minette. Minette, Minette yeah. Yeah, if you can just give me a thumbnail on those three guys, you know, how good are these players? Where might we expect to see them go? And just let the fans kind of know what, what those three guys are all about. Yeah, Menace really interesting because to me this is a guy who was a center, strong player, but the thing that hurts him is he wasn't able to participate in pro day. We're not sure what happened, but put up 26 reps on the bench and that was it. Um, so to me, Menace has the most upside of, you know, of those three. And then next would be Will Fries. Um, the thing is, they, Fries was a tackle at the beginning of last year, then they bumped him inside the right guard. They felt that he was more of a pro future at guard. So I think teams are going to like the versatility that he brings. And I thought Bryce had a pretty nice pro day and helped himself there. And then you mentioned Steven Gonzalez. Gonzalez was a guy who didn't have a pro day last year because of the pandemic. So went out, was undrafted, uh, signed with the Cardinals, and then was cut during the last round of cuts, I believe it was, in August. Um, so Gonzalez said that he's either stayed in football shape and just trying to get, get an opportunity for it. But Gonzalez is a huge, massive human being. I mean, he weighed in at 327 pounds which he said is the lightest that he's been. <laughs> um, so I think, you know, I think Gonzalez is a little bit older, so it's a little bit different there than the other guys. Uh, but, yeah, I would definitely say Bennett of those three is the most interesting. Um, he was a high, you know, high prospect coming out of high school, but he's a guy who's played center but also could play some guards too. The only other player that caught my attention in terms of versatility was safety Lamont Wade. I know he started out as a corner and then moved to safety. I guess the big question is, where do you define him on the next level? He didn't seem too pleased with his performance at the Pro Day, and he also has returned kickoff. So what's perhaps the outlook in terms of what Wade could bring to the NFL level? Yeah, you know, it's interesting because you look kind of at some of these guys, the slot corners, and whether or not you know he can be that, one of those nickel kind of guys. Um, yeah, I mean, his career was fascinating because you know he gets here as a five-star corner, then they move him to safety. Then he struggles a bit, comes back. You know, at one point he entered the transfer portal and decided to stay. So he's kind of been all over the place. Um, but he did provide a spark last year as a returner, which was something that he went to his coaching staff and lobbied. He wanted that opportunity. He did finally get it um, and was a spark for them. So, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, like we talked about earlier with some of these guys, it's a matter of finding out where they fit in best as opposed to just moving them all around. And I think Lamont Wade fits into that category. Um, you know, Penn State's secondary struggled last season. It was not a strong suit. So I think that, you know, probably hurts him a little bit. But, again, the versatility there, uh, four four seven. he ran in the 40. So, you know, he's he's got the good, you know, strong testing numbers, you know, 35-and-a-half-inch vertical. Uh, but, you know, it's just kind of going to be where does a team see him, you know, fitting in. But, again, this is a top-to-bottom. This is a really strong class for Penn State. Audrey, really appreciate the time today. Thank you so much, and I'm sure we'll talk to you again because every year Penn State has a bunch of guys that are going in the first couple of days of the draft. Thanks so much. Stay safe out there, yep. all right? Thanks, Audrey. You got it. Take care. That is Audrey Snyder. Does a great job covering Penn State for The Athletic. We thank her for joining us on Big Blue Kickoff Live. We're going to have Sam Webb, who covers Michigan, in about seven or so minutes. So I'm going to open up the phone lines between now and then. We'll try to squeeze in a couple calls, Lance, at 973-667-1960. Your overall take and reaction, and I guess the two headliners are the ones I'll focus on, Lance, on what she said about Parsons and Oway. 
Yeah, well, Parsons, I think right now it's just a matter of you bring him in. You know, where do you think he's the best fit within your defensive scheme? I mean, he clearly has athleticism. From what I viewed and from what I've observed, Penn State utilized him a lot right up the gut. I mean, they would blitz him right up the middle, and he would somehow find an opening, and he would do a lot of damage in the backfield. Now, there were times where he was off the edge, but there was a lot of it right up the middle as a middle linebacker. So is that his place? Do you branch him out a little bit more off of the edge? I think that still remains to be a looming question, but I don't think there's any doubt in terms of his upside and his versatility, which if you have a set plan, you could tap into it. I think the most intriguing prospect probably is not maybe Parsons, but is Jason O.A. Because once again, as we were talking with Audrey about, this is somebody who, I don't want to say he reminds me of JPP, John, but the reason why I think of JPP is JPP didn't play a lot of football before coming to college. Sure. And all of a sudden, he gets to the NFL, and the Giants, you know, got a good deal of value out of him. So I almost view him in that regard. I'm not saying he's JPP. What I'm saying is is that you don't really know what you have out of him because he's still defining himself as a football player. He's got the length. He's got the physique that's interesting. It's just a matter of can you get him to work on his arsenal of moves to be a better finisher? If you love the potential and you have a good coaching staff in place, he could be the type of guy that two years from now could really wow you based on what you could tap into. Yeah, I'm going to balance this out, Lance, because on one end, what do we always say on the show? Sacks can be random. They can be largely based on circumstance and luck. And we don't like to judge pass rushers solely based on sacks, right? That's something we say on the show all the time, and I stand by that analysis. So I'm not going to just judge Jason Owe on sacks. However, he did have a lot of pressures, and there is something to being able to finish. So is that something he can learn along the way? As you pointed out, you, you mentioned finishing. Is that something he can get better at? Is it an instinctual problem? where maybe he doesn't locate the ball well enough or doesn't feel well well, you know, well enough where the quarterback is. And is that something that can't be coached? So these are the tough questions that these personnel evaluators, Lance, are going to have to ask themselves. But And, and this is the point I made to Audrey, and I was really just joking around with her, that at some point the team's going to get up and a defensive line coach that, and or defensive coordinator that has a lot of influence in that draft and was going to say, yo, look at this guy and the type of athlete he is. I'm going to be able to get 10 sacks out of this guy. Just let me get my hands on him. Sure. And eventually a GM's going to say, eh, okay. <laughs> 100%. I can absolutely see that. I mean, once again, we're talking about 6'5", 252. The length is there. And once again, I can't emphasize this enough. He's a redshirt sophomore, John. Okay? He's had three years, but he only played two games in 2018. So it was really 2019 where he had his breakout, 11 games. And then this past season, because the Big Ten play was limited, he only had seven. He had a handful of tackles for loss. He had no sacks, though, after having five in 2019. So the pressures are there. It's just the sacks are not consistently there. But maybe a coaching staff says, hey, he could be the guy that you've got to pay attention to. You've got a double team and opens up opportunities for everybody else because he has a knack for penetration. Maybe somebody eyes him that way. I was reading up on his scouting report. They were talking about that his senior year of high school wasn't that impressive from a statistical standpoint, John, because what happened is they would triple team him at one point because they realized he was the best player on his team. So is he the type of guy that's sort of an attention seeker 
that could then open up doors for other players. Maybe teams value him from that standpoint. That would be something else to monitor. Yeah, last year, seven games, Lance. PFF has him for five quarterback hits, no sacks, 15 hurries, then 12 plays where he beat the offensive player, but the ball got out so quick he was never actually able to apply pressure. So, again, he's one of those guys that that has the talent, can be a star, but see how you develop. Okay, let's get one more call before we get to Sam Webb, who covers Michigan. Cole, you're on the air with John and Lance. What's your name? Where are you calling from? Hey, guys, it's Marco in Connecticut. Marco, what's up, man? Hey, Marco. What? Hey, guys. Good. I'm so happy that you were uh, talking with someone about Penn State today. I've had Micah Parsons circled on a uh, topic as I wanted to talk with you guys. I, I've gotten the feeling since the draft process has started, just listen to you guys, and I value all of your opinions, mixed on Parsons. And I listened a little bit um, here and there to the, to the guests. So when so guys that I have followed with the draft, someone like Daniel Jeremiah, he always talks about teams that have blue chip players at every line. Like if we're talking about a defense, who are the blue chip players? Yep. And for for me, he looks like one. Parsons looks like a blue chip player. And then Tampa Bay, right? Like why would we not want someone like Parsons next to a Blake Martinez? Looking at Levante David and Devin White. Um, or let me ask you, is this like an Isaiah Simmons situation where his athleticism is just through the roof, but maybe you don't know where to put him? And, and when I do ask myself that question, I come back to Sean Spencer. I'm like, this is crazy. We have this guy in the building. I'd like to think if the Giants drafted him, there is someone that we have on our staff that knows exactly how to utilize them. Well, here's the thing, Marco. At, Real quick, this is how I look at it. I would not worry about the off-the-field stuff because they have Sean Spencer on staff, and he was in, in yep. that program with him. So they'll know everything about him from that perspective. So if they draft him, you know that they feel good about him off the field, okay? That's the one thing I look at with him. I don't worry about position flex with him. I don't think it's a Justin Simmons situation. To me, he's a Mike linebacker. He's going to be in the middle of your defense, and he will eventually replace Blake Martinez there. He'll play next to him in the meantime, and that's fine. And on third downs, you can blitz him a lot. That's fine. It, it all works. My only worry for him is whether or not the coverage instincts come along at some point. To Audrey's point, and that's why I asked her the question, he hadn't played linebacker for very long. He's still relatively new to the position. So while he has the physical ability and the athleticism to cover— I haven't seen him do enough in coverage to me think he's going to be an elite coverage linebacker. And you go back, what makes a guy like Luke Keekley special was his ability to cover. So sure. that's my only hesitation with him. If the Giants feel good about his coverage ability, I think he is well worth the value at that spot in the draft. That's the only thing I worry about, and the reason I hesitate is because to me that's the most important aspect of the position these days. So... That's where I stand on him, at least. Oh, especially if he has to pick up a running back out of the backfield. Or tight end, whatever. Yeah, yeah. or a tight end as well. Correct. I mean, I think his vision is really good. He, he's good at plugging up the holes and sort of patiently waiting if the running back cuts back. And sure. he's got good anticipation from that standpoint. There just hasn't been a whole lot of when an opponent takes him up the sideline and whether or not you could see if he can stick with the guy. Because I agree with John. I mean, Luke Keekley, that's what set him apart, and that's why he was drafted so high. And if you go back to his Carolina film, there were tons of times where he would go out, he would defend the tight end, and you at least had confidence that he could handle himself one-on-one. -on -one. That's a big part of playing that position. Guys, I won't, I won't hold you to it today, but if, if Parsons and Rashawn Slater run the board at 11, what would you do? I'm picking Slater. And it's a relatively not. I shouldn't say easy decision, but I'm. I feel pretty good about picking Slater there. Okay, Lance. Lance. 
I mean, it comes down to me where you want to play Slater still. I, I think that remains a question. So I would say both players have some questions in terms of fit especially where the Giants would want them to fit, depending on what they think of the young guys already on the roster in terms of playing tackle. Slater hasn't really had a lot of guard experience, but a lot of people are saying maybe they move him inside. So if you feel like he's a tackle, I feel a lot more better about taking him there as opposed to the projection of him playing inside as a guard just to maximize his ability to get on the field. So I'd have to know where you want to play him to say that I'd want to go in the direction of Slater. I'm going to get Sam on the phone here, Lance. And I'll, I'll leave you this question as I, as I try to hook him up and, and get the call going here. I still think that middle linebacker is a premium position, though, and he talked about Daniel Jeremiah wanting to have blue chippers at every level. Having that elite middle linebacker does a lot for a defense. Sure. Well, I mean, it goes back to the last caller even alluded to it. If you look at Tampa Bay, Tampa Bay had drafted Levante David back in 2012. Okay, so he's a polished veteran. And then a few years ago, they brought in Devin White. And between the two of those guys, you know, they feel good that those two can clean up what is in front of them. And you know Tampa Bay has a lot of heavy hitters up front, and they did a heck of a job retaining all of those players in free agency. But you still need somebody, especially if you're going up against a good offensive line that is able to win the battle with the defensive guys up front and the running backs find holes. You need to have some reliability on the second layer. And that's what Blake Martinez brought to the table last season, which was an issue for the Giants in previous seasons. Who's the cleanup guy? Who's going to be the guy that's going to collect the tackles, make sure that you don't give up the big runs after the running back gets to the second level of the defense. So there's always value for a guy like Micah Parsons. And I think the added benefit is his ability to get after the quarterback and for them to allow him to spread his wings and blitz a little, which once again, they did not hesitate from doing that at Penn State because I can't tell you how many times where it parted like the Red Sea and then all of a sudden Parsons emerged from an entire group of individuals and still found a way to get penetration in the backfield. So that's, to me, the most attractive aspect that if you want him to be your middle linebacker, you know he's got a knack for stopping the run and he's got a knack for getting after the quarterback and applying pressure. And that's a good starting point yeah. considering you could always build upon that moving forward. Yeah, remember, back in the day, what do we always talk about? You know, third and six throws to the tight end and again, zone defense in the middle of the field. That's the other place where that middle linebacker can make a really big impact as well. Hey, Giant fans, by the way, we're joined by Sam Webb. He covers the Michigan Wolverines in just a second. But first, I want to remind Giant fans that limited Giant season tickets are on sale now for the 2021 season. In addition to ticket savings, membership benefits include access to exclusive events, experiences, pre-sales, and more. You can lock in your seats starting at just 100 bucks. Call 888-NYG-1925 or visit Giants.com slash tickets for more information. And Giant fans get a New York Giants checking account from Investors Bank with a Giants branded debit card, security features, and discounts at the Giants online shop. You can earn up to $250 when you open an account at InvestorsBank.com slash Giants. Member FDIC. And now we're joined by our next guest. His name is Sam Webb. Second straight year we've had Sam on. He's the publisher of the Michigan Insider via 24-7 Sports. Also the host of the Michigan Insider on WTKA. Sam, you got John Schmelk and Lance Meadow here in New York and New Jersey. How are you today, man? I'm doing great. How about you guys? We are doing great. And Michigan with a slew of players coming out here in the draft this year, Sam. And I want to start with Nico Collins, because I thought he had an unbelievable pro day. He's a guy that opted out last year. 
I saw him at the Senior Bowl, and I think there were some questions about his ability to create separation. We knew about his size, his long speed, contested catches, but I think people wondered about his separation ability, and I think he did all he could between that 4-4-3 40-yard dash time and 6-7-1-3 cone to show that he's more than just a over-the-top, you know, size, speed, contested catch guy. Yeah, you know, I've been following Nico since high school, and wasn't surprised. I mean, the thing that impressed me the most about Nico coming out, I mean, he, he's gotten a lot bigger since he got at Michigan as far as the, the mass that he put on, but watching him as a high schooler, uh, you know, obviously the same height, but maybe about 15, 20 pounds lighter, was his, his fluidity at that size. I mean, you guys know, been watching football a while, Guys, long guys like that, big receivers like that, they can be, they can lumber sometimes when sure, it comes to absolutely. when it comes to getting in and out of their breaks. They can be gangly, but he's, you know, he has, you know, great fluidity, great burst. He can break down and explode out of a break like a like a guy that's five eleven, six foot, six foot. That always impressed me a ton about him. Uh, uh, sorry about that. That always impressed me a ton about him. And I wasn't surprised to see him show that. I was more, you know, I wondered more about what his 40 time would be. I think if you watched him at Michigan, you saw him get deep, uh, you know, pretty regularly. I mean, he, if, it wasn't a, if it wasn't one of those, uh, if it wasn't a reception, it was a pass interference. And so, you know, with that, though, would that translate to big time 40 speed? And I think he showed that on the stopwatch that he can be – he's not just a jump ball guy. He can be a deep threat, too. So he, he has all the tools. The, the biggest question about Nico will be, you know, he just didn't have the elite numbers. He didn't have the elite production, the elite statistics that would maybe wow a team. You'll be going off measurables and some projection, but I think a team is going to get a steal uh, if you see him slide down into, you know, that second or third round. Well, 19.7 yards per catch in 2019, that is a very attractive number, especially when you're looking for explosive playmakers in the NFL. I guess my question in terms of Nico Collins, maybe the numbers, as you just alluded to, Sam, not necessarily jumping off the page, how much was that? Because I know we've talked about this with previous LSU players. How much was it the reflection of just the Michigan offense not being explosive and consistent enough that he just was at the mercy of who he was playing with? So I think it, it, it had to do with a couple of things. Uh, you, you mentioned the mercy of who he was playing with. Uh, I think that that was the case, but not in a way that fans might be thinking. Now, he came in a heralded receiver class. Uh, and so it's why he may have been – uh, he may have been downplayed a bit how good he was because he came in with two All-Americans and Donovan Peoples-Jones, who made a splash last year with the Browns, uh, and a guy named Tariq Black, who went on to transfer to Texas. Those were two, you know, six two, six three receivers, much like him, uh, much higher in the rankings. And so it, the reason why I mention them is you had to spread the balls around. And those guys, those guys got a lot of, a lot of the action, not just them. I mean, there's another receiver named Ronnie Bell. He got some of the some of the action. So the you know Michigan's sort of desire to spread the wealth. Uh, it, I think it it it, it kind of limited his number. And you can make the argument that with the production that Nico put up, uh, you know, the times that he was targeted, 
that he should have been targeted more, that, you know, in the end, I, I think there's a good chance that he'll wind up being the best of those guys, even with how well Donovan hit the scene last year with the Browns. So uh, I think it had a lot to do with who was on the team with him, but not in a way that, you know, where he was playing with guys who weren't very good. I think it was, hey, you were playing with some other really, really talented receivers, and then, you know, at Michigan, they're going to really try to run the football, too. They aren't going to be pass-happy. I think that limited his numbers as well. Sam, I want to jump now to the defensive side of the ball, and this is a similar question to the one that Lance just asked you. Quiddy Pay, who when I watch him on tape, boy, his explosion off the ball, his initial burst, it's all fantastic. Uh, 6'2", 261, I know he was probably disappointed he couldn't do all the different events at, the, at his pro day. He had, I think he had an injury on his 40-yard dash, right? So he couldn't really do much after that. But I think the question that I'll ask is this. Why didn't his production match those types of tools that you see watching him on tape? Yeah. Look, man, it's going to be that way with, with some of Michigan's guys. It was that way with Rashawn Gary. Who, sure. Who the Packers went with in the first round a couple of years back? You know, Quiddy is an elite athlete. Quiddy coming out of Rhode Island, he was a like an eleven seven, eleven second hundred meter guy, but he was really kind of learning the game. I think he surprised Michigan not in becoming a, a player, but in how soon he became one. He wasn't supposed to be a guy that would come in as a freshman and play right away, but he did. And so he is a he's a high IQ player. He's a guy that, when you look at Michigan's scheme, he was charged sometimes with not pinning his ears back, but with setting an edge to, or, or occupying a blocker so a blitzer could come through. I mean, there are some schematic things that would, would limit his numbers, too. Uh, at the same time, I mean, I thought that at his junior year that he really needed to show up bigger in the biggest game. And so if, if there was a, a criticism that went beyond, oh, the scheme is holding him back, in some of the bigger games he didn't have uh, – he didn't show up in the way that you need him. You need an elite player to show up. Now, we didn't really get a chance to measure that in his senior year because he was, you know, he was hurt, uh, and then he opted out the rest of the way. So uh, it's, it's hard to say that he didn't improve because we didn't have a chance to really see that. Uh, if you are a coach and you look at those numbers, though, you got to be wild with a guy that big, that fast, that explosive. And like I just told you, he's a really high IQ guy, super motivated, super hungry, you know, a team guy, you know, a yes sir, no sir guy. He, he checks all those boxes. Again, if I go back, though, it would be the big game performances. We really didn't see it uh, against Bama in the bowl game. We didn't see it against Ohio State. We didn't see it against Wisconsin. That would be the question from his junior year if I were a GM looking to draft him. Sam, it seemed as if they moved him around a bit in terms of his alignment on the line. And I guess yep. when you look at the measurements, you look at the numbers, one of the first things you do is you look for the pressures, you look for the sacks, specifically a player like that. But I'm always interested, well, when they ask a guy in route to getting to the quarterback to also stop the run, how effective can a player be? What it all jumped yeah. out to you about his upside in terms of stopping the run as opposed to just being a pass rusher? Yeah, so you, you bring up a great point. That's another thing that can limit his, his sack numbers. And it, it speaks to – so this is, this is different from the conversation with, with Nico where I said, hey, you know, his numbers are limited by who he was playing with because he was playing with some really, really good guys. Well, on the defensive front, I mean, you know, 
gone are the days. I mean, the the talent around him on the defensive line steadily declined, and I think that's one of the reasons why you saw Jim Harbaugh the, the performance of the overall defense decline, and ultimately Jim Harbaugh make a change at defensive coordinator. I mean, they don't have they didn't have the uh, you know the Taco Charlton's who was a first round pick, the Chris Wormley who's a, a tenured NFL guy. Now the Mo Hurst who I love with the Raiders, those those kinds of guys weren't around him on the defensive line. So you were able to, you know, dedicate some more attention to him. And it, it made it so he had to, you know, kick inside at times in, in pass rush situations and, and be a three-tech and, and, and try to get some pass rush from the interior. He was versatile enough to do that, but that's not ideal. That's not how you want to use him. Sure. So that's another way his numbers were limited, but – to be frank, again, go back to his junior year and those big games. It, it, that's that's one of the ways in which the you know the the lack of production maybe manifests the most. I mean, Wisconsin bowled Michigan over. Uh, you know, they they he didn't have a great game stopping the run against uh, against Wisconsin. Didn't have a great game stop a great day stopping the run against Ohio State uh, or, or or Bama. So. Uh, you know that's a that's a defensive thing, but if you were to grade him individually, I think that's what you would look at. But like I said, that was junior year stuff. Quitty in his senior year, he looked quicker, he looked bigger, he looked stronger, and we just didn't really get a chance to measure it because he uh, he basically didn't play last year. So uh, I think he's a guy that you roll the dice on because I know just watching the arc of his his growth as a as an athlete. I think it's easy to, to project that for a good coach. I mean, if you're a good coach, you can take that, you can make something out of it. And I think same deal. We can't really judge how much Ambry Thomas has improved last time we saw him on the football field either. So he said, I listened to his media availability after the pro day, and he said, look, I thought I was maybe the best cornerback heading into this year in the Big Ten, and I still think I'm one of the best cornerbacks in the Big Ten. And he ran a 4.37 at the pro day, 5.11, He was an opt-out in 2020. How should NFL GMs, Sam, look at him? Is he a guy that you might be able to get a real nice bargain on because of that opt-out where maybe you Absolutely. get him in the third round, but he's really a, an, an early second-round value? Absolutely. Absolutely. I love the kid. I, I mean, more than as much or more than any other player that Michigan has coming out this year. Wow. I, I just I love his mentality because it, it's, not just, it's not just his athleticism. You know, I watched him come up from, you know, his his freshman year at Detroit King all the way, all the way through Michigan, and you knew he was an elite athlete. But his his mentality, his demeanor on the field, you love that. I mean, he he stepped into a position that was stacked. I mean, you got some big time guys. You got David Long in the NFL. Lavert Hill was an All Big Ten player, right? You got some guys. You know, Michigan had been churning out some corners, so he really had to to wait his turn, and when his turn came, though, and this tells you something about the kid, he had an illness. He had a, a major bout with colitis that that knocked him out prior to his junior year, uh, that summer between his, his sophomore and junior seasons. And so he lost. I mean, he was down to like 150 pounds. Oh, uh, man. Yeah, they, yeah, they, they didn't know that if he would be able to play maybe until Big Ten play. It was it was that dire. But here, this kid, he's in the hospital, running stairs, you know, doing things doctors don't want you to do. <laughs> By the time the season rolls back around, 
he was back up to 175, 180. Uh, and, you know, by the time Paul Kemp rolls around, I should say, by the time the season rolls around, he's back up at 190. He started the season and played the season and played at a pretty good level. And that's after missing basically the, the entire offseason. So uh, a kid with that kind of toughness, and he's a leader. I mean, he holds his teammates accountable. I mean, he's the kind of guy that will run off-season workouts. I just think that that kid is, is scratching the surface of what he could be. We didn't. His best football is without question ahead of him because he had to wait his turn first, so you didn't really get a chance to see him on the field right away. Then when his turn came, he's coming off an illness. He's not getting much pass rush either up front. That's another issue. And then last year rolls around, and, oh, by the way, he opts out of the season uh, due to the COVID shutdown. So uh, someone who does their research is going to get an outstanding prospect and, and Ambry Thomas, he it was about brushing up his technique and getting him bigger. I think those things happen. It's going to happen even more at the NFL level. Someone's going to get themselves a steal if he gets to, to the third round or late. Sam, speaking of scratching the surface, because I find that phrase interesting to the next player I'm going to bring up, because here's another guy in my mind. Small sample size, you like some of the flashes. The question is, what can happen at the next level? That, to me, is linebacker Cameron McGrone, who appeared in 19 games, just 15 starts at middle linebacker. Made a lot of disruptive plays in 2019, though, as you can attest, it just wasn't a lot of games in 2020. What have you seen out of him that maybe also could say whoever does do their research could get a versatile or a disruptive player out of him? Yeah, uh, you know, Cam is another guy. He... He jumps off the page at you with his athleticism. Um, he, people who are concerned about his knee injury, he suffered a knee injury in high school, uh, you know, prior to his senior year. I think it was his, uh, you know, the summer, the summer after his junior season. Oh, no, no, no. I think it was like December after his junior season. The kid was back running in March. And, and uh, we watched him at a camp in May. He was already back down to four six. I mean, the kid is, is a, a really, really supreme and superb athlete. Uh, I think a, a legit criticism of Michigan is that kid should have been getting more snaps. He should have been getting more snaps to get him ready to, to be the guy at the position. Uh, hard to do when you had a Devin Bush in there, right? <laughs> you know, hard, to, hard to say that you're going to find some snaps in there, but, but working him in next to Devin or getting him some more action – uh, in front of maybe some guys that were more veteran but not as talented would have helped his development some. So I think what you the, – the aspect of his game that you saw flash the most is he's an outstanding blitzer. A lot of guys you send on blitzes, they just go on a blitz, but do they make – you know, do they make anything happen? Do they get there? Do they – you know, do they get caught in the wash or do they get a pressure? Do they get a sack? And he's a guy, you send him on a blitz, he's going to wreak some havoc. Uh, but, you know, you're going to see – you're also going to see some, some times where his inexperience shows when it comes to diagnosing plays. Uh, that, that's legit, right? That, you know, you, you question that. It's going to take some development. But, again, you, you roll the dice and you got a guy that can run like that at the linebacker position. He's not only a sideline to sideline guy, he's a guy that can, that can carry tight ends down the field uh, if you want him to. He can, he can moonlight in, in crunch situations. You want him to – you know, line up over a, a slot or cover a running back. He's the guy with the athletic talent to do that, needs to be coached up in that way. Uh, you know, Michigan wasn't a heavy zone team 
And by that, I mean they were very basic in their zone. They were a cover two spot drop team, not very sophisticated in the, in the kinds of zones and the variances of zones that they ran. And so it's going to take some coaching up. But if you do that, again, you got another guy that is, is really, really talented. And like, I, like you said, scratching the surface, he could be one of those guys. I mean, I, know, I think we've seen more of Ambry to be able to say, yeah, you know, definite steal. With, uh, with Cam, it's, it's more of a projection to me, but one that I would certainly be willing to take. How about Jalen Mayfield? 6'5", 326. The guy just looks like an offensive tackle um, if you built one in a lab. Where do you think he might go, and what do you think his future upside is in the NFL? Late first round, early second round, uh, a, a pit bull of an offensive lineman. They did a good job of taming him when he got to Michigan, watching him in high school. He was a guy that uh, they say play to the whistle. He he would play until the whistle stopped, right? So he would push it. He would push it all the way, uh, just short of getting flagged for unnecessary roughness. He's one of those types of dudes. Uh, but again, a, a guy who brings you prototypical size at a legit six five. He's a good athlete. He is going to be versed in in the run game and run blocking. Uh, I think that he's a guy that has. That has the, the versatility. If you wanted to play him on the left side, he could. And, and, and a guy, you know, one guy, who, guy whose word really, really stands out, uh, the offensive line coach for the Chicago Bears, Juan Castillo. Uh, he was an analyst at Michigan before he went back to the pros to take the, uh, you know, to take the Bears job. And he just raved about Jalen Mayfield. I mean, he's, that's, that's the guy in the sleeper team. I don't know. I don't have a draft order in front of me. To, to really be looking at where the Bears fall, but uh, he's definitely going to be a guy on the Bears board. You can mark that down because I know Juan Castillo loves Jalen Mayfield. There are two guys that I think are worth bringing up on each side of the football. Carlo Kemp, the defensive lineman who's got a lot of length, mainly played nose tackle, and then running back Chris Evans, who... I found interesting that it looked like they lined him up as a slot-wide receiver at times, but his numbers as a receiver don't necessarily jump off the page. So if you could sort of break down those two guys in particular, Sam, and you know, if anything, what teams could potentially get out of them if they try to target them later on in the draft? Yeah, so uh, and let's start with Chris Evans. So the reason why they put Chris Evans at the slot is because he's an exceptional receiver. And that's really where they recruited him. When they recruited uh, Chris out of out of Indianapolis. I mean, it was as a slot receiver. You know, he was gonna he was gonna be a part of Michigan diversifying their offense and giving them a weapon uh, out of the slot with some open field ability. Uh, but they got in camp and they said, "Oh wait, wait, this dude is not afraid to run between the tackles." He was actually pretty effective at running between the tackles and earned some earned some playing time as a. Um, you know, as a true freshman, running back. And I, I think that a, a couple of things happened. He got bigger, uh, and you could say that he, he got bigger to the point where maybe it slowed him down some as, as far as his 40 speed was concerned. So he, it was necessary for him to sort of, to sort of find the optimal size for him. I, I think he, he understood he needed to get bigger to run in the Big Ten, but you, you don't need to get so big that it – uh, you know, that it, it keeps you from having the kind of burst that you had when you're a much lighter player. So I think that was a journey for him. And then the other part was, you know, he was suspended for a season. There was uh, 
you know, he had an academic thing that put him out of the, uh, not just off the team, but out of the university. Uh, he, instead of uh, going to another school or trying to go to the NFL early, he literally worked his way back. He got a job. He trained on his own. He coached football. He coached the local high school team. He coached some seven-on-seven uh, teams with some little kids. I mean, this is a kid that really worked his way back just to get an opportunity at Michigan to finish and then go to the NFL. So you see a guy that shows you he's willing to battle through some adversity, even self-inflicted adversity, uh, and has some legit receiver skills out of the backfield. As far as Carlo Kemp, you know, Carlo Kemp is your classic try-hard guy, high IQ guy, selfless guy on the interior, whatever you need him to do, you want me to plug a gap, I can do that. He spent some time playing on the outside uh, and might be best suited uh, you know, as a as a strong side defensive end at that level, uh, it'll be interesting to see what pro teams think of him. Uh, but you you think a lot of his his football IQ because of the family that he he comes from. He's the Paganos are his uncles, and so you know you're talking about and his and their dad, his dad, his granddad, and the Paganos' dad, Sam Pagano, is like one of the all time great coaches in the history a Colorado high school football. He's coached big-timers like uh, Tony Baselli was one of his guys, for instance. So you're talking about a guy who comes from really, really good football stock, can really, really think the game, not your super explosive athlete, uh, but but a guy that you can plug in that is going to you know be good against the run, going to be a good locker room guy, a good solid you know depth-like defensive lineman for a team that wants to jump on uh, real quick, uh, one Embry Thomas follow-up. Is he a guy you're going to play outside or are you going to put him in the slot? I think you could do both. I think you could do both. Uh, to me, I think that he is a more than capable uh, outside corner. But if you wanted to, you know, if a team had those positions on lock and they wanted to bring him along and you, I mean, you know, I mean, nickel in the NFL is, is a starting, starting job. Yeah, he's a starting days, position, right? absolutely. Yeah, so – He's a guy that can do that. He's he's quick enough to stay with your shiftier receivers. Uh, you know, I think that you know, he – and he's not going to be a liability. It's not like the NFL. They're running the football a ton uh, <laughs> like they do in college. I think, you know, Michigan would always lean towards – the former defense quarter would lean towards having a safety play nickel because he, he was so concerned about teams being able to run the football on him. But a guy like Ambry can do that. A guy like Ambry can, can play there and still be solid in the run game, too. But I would play him on the outside. He has prototypical length. He can jump. I think his vertical at his pro day was 38 inches. Uh, you know, he's going to be strong enough as well. He's been working on his body. I, I just think that Ambry Thomas is going to be one of the steals from Michigan's class for sure. Now, last year, I asked you this question to close our interview, and you gave me Michael Owenyu, and he ended up being a starter in the NFL right off the bat. Who's the Michigan guy, and maybe you already talked about him, in which case your answer could be very quick, um, that you think nobody is talking about enough that could be an impact player? Ambry Thomas. Ambry <laughs> <laughs> Thomas. You watch. It's, you know, it's something about those, those kids from, you know, Mike Onwenu is a Detroit guy, too. You know, he's from Mike Onwenu was a Detroit cast tech dude. And Ambry and Thomas, you're talking about Detroit King. They just cut from a different cloth, grind it out dog mentality, uh, and, you know, Mike had an interesting journey, too, where he had to work his way uh, into the right body size to be able to contribute, uh, and you felt like his best football is ahead of him. 
I think there's some similar themes at play with Ambry, his best football, absolutely ahead of him. We're going to talk next year. You got to say, Sam, yeah, you're right, man. You're two for two. Like that when you and Ambry Thomas, you watch. You just call me next year so we can so we can revisit this conversation. We look forward to it, Sam. Good stuff, my friend. Appreciate it. Thanks, Sam. All right, guys. I'll talk to you. Be good, man. Great job by Sam Webb. Just good job. Of course, he's the publisher of the Michigan Insider. Uh, for 24-7 Sports. And you can also find this show, The Michigan Insider, on WTKA Radio out there as well. Lance, two big schools there. I don't know how the hell Michigan didn't win more games this year. I mean, they have well. some really <laughs> good players coming out. Holy cow. Yeah, well, I think their offense left a little bit to be desired in terms of their overall production. But And, and we should know, too, that two of the guys you talked about did opt out this past year, too, of which, which also yeah. might have something to do with it. Yeah, I would say just a tad uh, when you can't rely on some of your uh, big game changers on the field. Uh, that's a big reason why Michigan struggled to stop the run, as even Sam alluded to when we were talking about some of the defensive players and the importance of pass rushers also stopping the run en route to the quarterback because if you can't do that then you're going to give up explosive plays especially if you can't finish but yeah there is some depth within this Michigan class I don't think there's any doubt about it in terms of Nico Collins at the wide receiver position you know his length his size makes him intriguing I threw out a linebacker who Sam even talked about probably should have got more playing time Cameron McGrone you know he has certainly caught my eye and then who we close out the conversation with in terms of Ambry Thomas a guy that did not play in 2020 is not in the conversation with the likes of Caleb Farley and you know, Sertan, but could very well be the next guy up if you can't grab one of those other two guys and you could get a versatile, solid corner. He seems to be very high on him. And remember, there's guys that go in the late first round to teams that are much more in a position to contend. And sometimes that's an ideal fit because they're not called on immediately to be hero. They can settle into the defensive scheme. And then all of a sudden you get a bigger impact out of them in year one. Lance, good stuff, my friend. We continue tomorrow with LSU up in the draft prospects with the Tino and Fiegels. Absolutely. Sounds good. Should be a lot of fun. We'll continue to do these pro days next couple of weeks. So hopefully you're learning about these prospects. I know we are as well. We thank you for being with us on today's episode of Big Blue Kickoff Live, which is on the Giants Podcast Network presented by Investors Bank. You can find the archive of this show and all of our programs at Giants.com slash podcast on the Giants mobile app and on all of our favorite podcast platforms. Don't miss out on your chance to experience a premier hospitality experience watching Giant games and world-class concerts in 2021 as a Giants suite partner. Limited full season locations are available or place a deposit for individual games. Call 888-NYG-1925 or visit Giants.com slash suites for more information. For Lance Meadow, I'm John Schmelk. We'll see you on Thursday at noon for another episode of Big Blue Kickoff Live. Until then.